Today on Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about how the business world needs more creative people and how the best businesses are ones that are truly different and truly embrace creativity. I'll be joined by Ray Sheeran, who is the founder of Chemistry, one of Ireland's most known and loved creative agencies. So stay tuned as we discuss the importance of creativity on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing, where we'll be talking about creativity and how it's becoming an endangered species in left-brain-dominated business today. I'm delighted to be joined by Ray Sheeran, who's business marketing and brand consultant. Welcome, Ray. Thank you, Dave. We've known each other a long time, so it's great to have you on. And as, as I've said, I'm looking to get more a broader perspective on these things because on these podcasts, I think sometimes they're, they can be quite heavy about media things. So I'm delighted to have you today and I'm looking forward to this one. It's going to be a great chat. So we kick off. You wrote a, a great article. It's in today's Irish Times. And the way you put it, which which is lovely, which is it's about creativity being the last legal unfair advantage um, available to business today, which I thought was, which was lovely. And the article the article is a great read. So I'd recommend anyone to uh, listen to read that. And we'll talk through the key points in it, but the opening sentiment is around this area where businesses, as we know, is increasingly left brain. And what we've seen is more accountants becoming CEOs or at least on boards in in major business today. But you, and we were chatting earlier on, we were talking about this, you pointed out that in most of the cases, the people who start those businesses, the entrepreneurs, the the people who set it up are, you know, they're the creative, the entrepreneurs, and, and they're the ones with the vision. Now, I love accountants and you love accountants, Ray. It's a fine profession. We both know that. So we're not accountant bashing here. But they do, as we know, tend to operate in more deterministic business cultures than probabilistic. So they look for cause and effect and they look for proof and evidence that something's going to work, which is difficult because a lot of advertising and certainly creativity and creative, it just doesn't really work like that. So my first question is kind of to play devil's advocate here. Like, is it a bad thing that accountants are in control? Because quite often the owner manager can be disorganized. They're brilliant visionary, but they can be, sometimes they're not structurally, you know, I suppose, good managers. So the idea of having somebody who's very left brain, very structured, very kind of focused on cost and management, that kind of stuff, you get the best of both worlds. What's the problem with that? Well, First of all, I suppose what I should do is to credit the uh, source of the title of the article, The Last Legal Unfair Competitive Advantage. That comes from Dave Trott, so it's not something of my own my own invention. So to answer the question, my view is that it's all about balance. Mm-hmm. So what I said in the article is that 20% of FTSE 100 company CEOs are accountants. That is by far you know, the biggest number, percentage, way bigger than any other profession. And then when you look at boards of directors generally, you see that, again, there are far more accountancy backgrounds represented there than any other background. So my issue is, as you say, it's nothing against accountants, but my argument is for just a much better balance of disciplines in companies, particularly at a senior level. So I think it starts with the way that business studies and marketing studies are taught, uh, you know, because students are taught that everything must be able to be rationalized and supported and validated And there's kind of no room for creativity because Mm. by definition, creativity is all about difference rather than conformity. So it's training people to just recognize things that are essentially the same as each other. On the point about needing a left brain logical person to to run the day-to-day operations, that doesn't have to be the CEO. It could just as easily be the chief operating officer. And businesses, in my view, can no longer afford to be just about running day-to-day operations anymore. I think the analogy I use sometimes is that business are, businesses are like certain species of sharks. They have to keep moving in order to stay alive. Um, mm-hmm. So they need to be in a continuous state of, of evolution or they, they will die. Mm-hmm. There was a really interesting piece in the Weekend's Examiner uh, about Linda Doyle, who's Trinity's new provost and the first female provost in their 429, I think, year, year history. And she's got a really interesting perspective, you know, on all of this. Firstly, she's the only professor in the world of both engineering and the arts. And she makes the point that the separation of the disciplines is, is completely artificial. So she understands and she values the symbiotic relationship that can and actually should exist between the disciplines, where the left brain and the right brain work together mm-hmm. to create something far greater than either one of the hemispheres could, you know, could do on its own. Very, very very occasionally, people can be equally adept in both. And if you look at some of the most creative people in, in history, they often excel in a number of disciplines. Leonardo da Vinci, for instance, probably being the best, mm. best known example. But in most cases, those skills come from different people. And my point is that homogeneity in terms of disciplines at a senior level is ultimately very damaging uh, to companies. So 
I think that businesses just need to be better about championing creative thinking in their organizations, what you describe as probabilistic, meaning that the model is basically able to incorporate some level of spark some randomness mm. rather than being all deterministic so that basically all of the outputs are fully determined and the parameters set at the start. It's a great analogy because like ideally you want people who can do both, who can do left brain, right brain, but they're hard to find. So I think having a balance and you do point out that like it's an interesting point and it's in, it's in the article that you said that like in culture in general, in life, that um, creativity tends to dominate, dominates art, dominates in cultures, but why does it not happen in business? So, and even I'm a big fan of um, football as my passion. When I think about football, the creative players are the ones, yeah, sure, there's solid players and there's players who are really good at certain type of roles, but the creative players are the ones, it's rare as hen's teeth, they're the ones that make a difference between winning a league or Champions League and actually ending up with nothing. And those people are in short supply. So it seems that that culture generally um, values creativity, but that just doesn't happen when it comes to business. So why does that not happen, do you think? How have we got to that point now? Yeah, I think it's an extraordinary place for us to to have gotten to because basically in business, I think in life generally, but particularly in business, there is no reward without taking some level of risk. Mm -hmm. Okay, So whether that's fortune favours the brave or faint heart never won fair lady or what it is you're doing from a commercial point of view. I think that the main reason that analysis is valued over creativity is that businesses are mostly very risk averse. And my own view is that in in recent times, in the past 10 years, I think they have become even more risk averse. Mm -hmm. So boards of directors are supposed to set and agree the risk level that is acceptable to them, you know, and then they try and predetermine as much as possible how to mitigate those risks. However, I think a lot of businesses don't even operate at the agreed level of risk. Mm -hmm. Instead, people are kind of operating at a no-risk level, where if the outcome can't can't be predetermined, it's regarded as too risky and therefore it's dismissed. So it's almost like how businesses are operating is that if there is any risk, it's safer to say no, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's better to actually do nothing than to take risk. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a real problem because for sure, sometimes taking risk does result in failure. But if it's a calculated risk made by people who are professions, you know, professional in what they do, Mm. it should far more often result in in great success. In the ad industry, for instance, where, you know, where I've spent my, my career, taking risks isn't just optional. It's actually essential. Because if you do everything according to a formula, it means that everything becomes completely homogenous. There will be no differentiation, which ultimately leads to commercial failure. And very, very often, it's the the, off-the-wall ideas are the ones that work. And a really nice example of this is a story that I came across in a podcast uh, a few years ago. And it was about a residential care facility for the elderly in Germany, most of whose patients you know, had dementia or or Alzheimer's. And this facility had a problem because it was located a few miles outside of Dusseldorf. And what happens, you know, when people with Alzheimer's get that urge to to flee, when they get that flight thing, they would end up in the centre of Dusseldorf. And sometimes it would take days and days for them to to be located. There was an old man who was an advisor to the board and he came up with a brilliant but completely off the wall solution. And his suggestion was that they build a bus stop outside of the care home. Now, this was in a quiet residential street. No buses ever went up or or down Mm. there. But his thinking was that as soon as the fleeing person saw the bus stop, they would wait there for the bus to arrive, which then allowed time for someone in the home to spot them and for the person's anxiety to abate a little. Now, straight logical thinking would never arrive at such a smart solution. Yeah, it's a lovely idea. We chatted off Mike a little bit earlier on about, because I want to talk about advertising for a second and, and, uh, you know, maybe... It's just a function of what's happened. We've it's been beaten out of us, and and you know we have to prove things work. But we talked about the famous Apple campaign, which is all about thinking differently. Um, and you say being different is a key component of creativity because if not, like everything is the same, and we all kind of blend into one. And yet, when you look at category, I know this myself. And you make the point that there's rules within categories, and although we all know we should be different to stand out, too often everybody kind of slavishly follows those category rules. So there was a, a campaign that you mentioned and we were talking about before, which is the Gorilla campaign, the Cadbury's Gorilla campaign. I worked on that at the time, and I remember 
the, the marketing director in Ireland was trying to explain the ad to us to a room full of people and he, and, he, and I was like he's clearly got this wrong like he, it can't be just as he described to me Phil Collins music with a gorilla playing drums no narrative and I, he got it right that was exactly it and it was mad it was completely different and it shouldn't have worked so I think that that's a great example and we chat about this before right and you'll know this you have to you might have a creative idea and then you have to take that in and, and kind of get it tested in, in focus groups but that ad bombed in link testing before it went. So can you just give a little bit of background about that in terms of why? I don't think that would happen today. I think that, that idea so, would be shot down. I think I think you're right. I think it's, it's very unlikely for that type of thing to happen. And I think even then, it was a bit of a rarity, which is one of the reasons why the story is is so good and so inspiring in a way. It's I think it's a brilliant example of creativity and indeed intuition trumping logic. Because Millward Brown, who's the world's largest uh, tester of ads, uh, found that that particular ad in focus groups, the Cadbury's Dairy Milk Gorilla one, uh, scored poorly among women on the measures of awareness and brand appeal. And it was only about average among men. Phil Rumble, who was the then marketing director at Cadbury's, took a very brave decision and he went ahead and shot the ad without getting the approval of Cadbury's management. Now, again, imagine somebody doing that these fired, days. fired, yeah. Big time. And it took him then six months after that to persuade the Cadbury's management to ignore the research and to air the ad. And when they did, its return on investment was three times the average for packaged goods campaigns. And it is now the UK's most popular ad of all time. So fantastic. There's another great example, which is a local one that that you might remember. And it's the Guinness ad called Anticipation. Mm -hmm. And this was a lovely piece of work. It was was based on a a product truth and indeed a differentiator, which is the fact that, you know, you've got to wait for the pint to settle. And the ad has got just two cast members. It's got a kind of a stoic-faced barman and an actor called Joe McKinney. And what he does is he orders his pint. And then as he's waiting for it to settle, he does a very quirky dance Mm -hmm. as the bemused barman looks on. So the track by Perez Prado uh, got to number one in Ireland and got to number two in the UK. The ad won a shed load of awards and it was credited with increasing sales, market share and brand awareness. But the lesser known part of that story, which is the one that really fascinates me, is that that ad was only run as a filler and it wasn't researched because like Cadbury's, if it had been researched, it would have most likely bought for actually for all of the reasons that made it so successful, which is the irony of it. Mm. But Guinness was actually in the process of making another ad at the time, which was then the most expensive TV ad ever produced in Ireland. And it was the result of a huge amount of creative development and research. And as it turned out, that was the ad that bombed. Yeah. Like, it's really interesting. So, um, I'm always, and we talk about this, I'm always skeptical of focus groups. It doesn't, like, we don't have to deal with them that much in media, but like, I feel from creative agency's point of view, I'm always skeptical about it. And when I think about it, like, it seems absolutely crazy that we value, like, the opinion of a room full of people who are, you know, they're on panels, they continuously go to panels, like, you, you know, they're paid for this. And we seem to have a view that these people know best. And and the way you put it in the article is that what you end up with in, in that instance is, is um, as you said, work that nobody has a problem with. And, you know, we talked about Cadbury's there and the gorilla campaign. And when, when I think back, even going back to, I think it was Tango, you know, there was ads, advertising was much more prevalent in culture, it just seemed to make more of a difference. It was more important in business. So I think I know what you'll say here, but I'll ask you anyway, do you think that the world is filled with too many bland advertising and communications campaign at the moment? And do you think that the ad industry has lost its relevance and lost its kind of seat at the top table, both in business, but lost its kind of impact in culture generally? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a very uh, thorny topic. And my worry is that it's worse, actually, you know, than the industry losing its cultural reference. Uh, my fear is that it's in danger of losing its commercial uh, right. relevance, which is a far greater problem. So I've already mentioned Dave Trott. I'm a huge fan of, of Dave Trott and would encourage people to check out his podcast and stuff. It's uh, you know brilliantly written, always just interesting and informative. One of his books is called Predatory Thinking, and it's a masterclass. The subtitle of it is It's a Masterclass in Outthinking the Competition. Um, and it's where that, that uh, headline came from. So in that book, uh, Trott quotes some research on communications effectiveness which shows that of the £21 billion spent uh, in communications in the UK every year, only 4% is remembered positively, Mm. a 7% is remembered negatively, but the overwhelming majority, so 89%, is neither noticed nor remembered. 
So that's over £18 billion sterling wasted every year. So Trot points out that, you know, being noticed and being remembered is what is vitally important because if you don't get the attention of the consumer, Mm -hmm. you have failed kind of immediately. And that's the the proof of the ineffectiveness of kind of bland vanilla type communications. It's the type of work that gets approved by clients because no one has a problem with it. It's the lowest common denominator. It's risk-free, but it's also you know, reward-free. And then on just another point on the commercial relevance piece is, you'd be really familiar with these guys, two of the most famous, really, marketing effectiveness gurus, Les Binnett and Peter Fields, they produced that seminal work on marketing effectiveness called The Long and Short of It, which was partly about trying to find the optimum balance between longer-term brand-building campaigns and shorter-term results-oriented campaigns. They had based that on what was, at the time, the biggest ever analysis of marketing effectiveness, award-winning campaigns, And one of their findings, which is something that we used to use in new business pitches all of the time to try and persuade clients to be a bit more brave, was that award-winning work was about 12 times more likely to deliver market share Mm. growth than non-award-winning work. However, Peter Field has been shown in recent years that the marketing effectiveness number is actually in decline. So instead of 12 times more likely, which which it was about 10 years ago, the multiplier has now dropped to about four. Right. So that's the point about commercial relevance. What Peter Field describes as a final wake-up call for good sense before it's too late. Mm. And the main reason for that fall in effectiveness is due to a focus on short-term, you know, short-term yeah. sales application campaign, the type of things that, that pleases CEOs of companies who are accountants. Okay, mm. so back to that battle problem. And it's at the expense of the longer-term brand building stuff. And what to me sort of feels, you know, bitterly ironic in a way, I suppose, is that we now know more about marketing effectiveness than we have at any point in history. And how ironic is it that we're ignoring what it is that we know? Now, in fairness, I think it is part of a a larger business meta trend towards short-termism and the lack of a longer-term vision. But it is a very unwelcome and dangerous trend. So I think that there needs to be just greater creative representation at senior levels in companies. And I think that would go a long way to help kind of redress the balance, correct the balance. Yeah, it's a great point. And I mean, I see it all the time. We've talked about a lot of those. There's a lot in there and we've we've covered quite a, lot, a few of those points that you've had on, on specific podcasts we were talking about. Like too often brand managers aren't around long enough. They change too often. So it's actually not in their interest. If you reward people at their short-term performance and actually if I'm going to do a long-term project for a, a brand to turn it around, but I'm not going to be there in two years. I'm basically benefiting my successor. So I think the way reward structures and the way agencies and, and I know people move around is good, but like I think it's a real problem with it. But um, just to stick with that point about asking people what they want in focus groups generally, particularly when it comes to creativity, like you, you couldn't imagine it happening with an artist going, I'm just going to like pre-test my work. It's just not going to happen. Advertising and the creative process is very much creative. So, you know, I love the Henry Ford line where he said, if I'd have asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? And quite often, people are not the best, more often than not, people are not the best judge of what they actually want, what they need, or what they'll buy. They don't know what they want. And that's what innovation is all about. So, I mean, I even think about, I've seen it before, been involved with a client, with a creative agency like yourselves, where we get the early, the pitch winning idea that won you the business. I thought that's amazing. And then actually fast forward six, nine months, what goes on air is very different. And it's just been chipped away here. You know, that idea has changed a little bit. You change so many different things on that idea. And what you're left with is, I just how do we, how did this end up? Like, and if you look at that work, you'd say, that wouldn't have won a pitch. But the idea that won you the pitch is very rarely the one that actually gets shot. And the same with media, when people sit in an artificial environment and they look at an ad and they're, you know, you, you watch things differently when you know you're there to critique something. So that's a very different scenario than looking at an ad at home in an ad break on your sofa when kids are there and, you know, in the context of a television show. It's a completely artificial environment, yet I know why we have to do it. You said in the article, sometimes it's about kind of covering your ass a little bit. It's about just an insurance policy in case something doesn't work. You can say, well, look, we tested it. It should have worked. But when we think about folks, do you think they're valuable at all? At their core, there's merit in testing an idea, but it's just there has to be a better way of doing it. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that the whole explosion, I mean, research is a great business, you know, to be in. It's a very, very profitable part of the, you know, marketing sector. And the explosion, the use of focus groups is really because of the need for marketers to justify and validate the campaigns that they run. I read something a few years ago, I can't actually remember where, but it it kind of struck me at the time and it's stuck with me since. And it said, what matters most to people in business and government is not a successful outcome. It's the ability to defend their decision, whatever the outcome. 
which is pretty depressing. Yeah. I mean, focus groups and other forms of research, in my view, can be very useful in trying to help to understand consumers and in trying to find insights from which differentiating and successful campaigns can be built. But I'm, I'm really not at all a fan of the use of focus groups for creative testing purposes. And the reason that I'm not is that the more original the concept, the less likely yeah. it is to get past the focus group because research loves the familiar mm. and rejects essentially the unfamiliar. So by definition, the work that is more likely to get past focus groups is work that they're familiar with. In other words, work which is like what everyone else is doing. So it won't stand out then when it goes into campaign and it won't get remembered. Mm. It'll be in that 89% that I mentioned earlier. Mm. But when it fails, marketers are going to be able to point to the research and say, well, look, at it, it, you know, it did well there. Yeah. The other reason I'm not a great fan of focus groups for creative testing is that it essentially forces people to, to think about ads and communications in a way which is not natural to them. It's actually alien. It's completely artificial. So, you know, Daniel Kahneman, the famous psychologist, you know, Nobel Prize winner for economics, in his book, uh, best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, showed that cognition is overwhelmingly based on feeling and emotion rather than rational uh, thought. And what he described as system one thinking, it's basically intuition and it's incredibly fast. And then system two, it's, uh, you know, much more kind of logical and, and, and analytical. But despite that, it can often be, be irrational. For things like brand preference and purchase decisions, it's system one all of the way. But focus groups essentially force people to apply system two thinking uh, to process the work that they're being shown. So it's totally unreal for them to do so. Mm. Um, there's just so many times I have seen great campaigns in the making getting rejected in research because of people trying to apply logic uh, yeah. to emotion. So I'm really of the view that the most valid and accurate creative test is the initial instantaneous gut reaction, you know, and that's how it operates in, in real life. Mm -hmm. Again, so many times I have seen people, you know, have a hugely positive initial reaction to see to something that they have seen. And then the more they think about it, the more yeah. they talk down and find reasons to, you know, to reject it. And then the final reason that I've got a really big problem with, with uh, you know, focus group testing, including on the, on the Cadbury's one, is that, you know, I'm really sceptical about scoring in qualitative research. Mm -hmm. So the Cadbury's one, for example, uh, Milward Brown scoring it poorly on awareness and brand appeal, mm -hmm. that's applying quantitative uh, scoring to what is a qualitative process. Mm. And it was completely wrong, mm. as was proved to be the case. Yeah, and it does. I mean, it, it takes a brave client and, you know, particularly one to go against the process of, we didn't sign off that ad to get it made. And, and as we said earlier, I'm, I'm not sure you'd have a lot of goodwill in the bank to survive going against you know breaking the protocol so I'm I suppose it's great when it works if it didn't work he probably would have been well we wouldn't be talking about him today we'd be saying he made a bad ad he didn't get it link tested and he got fired um, and that would be a very shorter story um, so the case for creativity is well and truly made and so but it is easier said than done I think there's a comfort in logic and you know saying is this going to work prove it's going to work and there's a discomfort in creativity and probabilistic decisions that we don't know are going to work so we're going to get into some of the, the points that you talk about that kind of which I like which is talking about how we can start to um, embrace creativity and nurture a culture of creativity in businesses. So, and you put it really nice. You say, look, there's probably enough logical thinkers already in every company. That's what you said in the article. And what businesses need today is different perspective. And we know that from everything that we hear about diverse workplaces, you don't want groupthink. You don't want people all with the same skill sets. It's just, it's not a good place to be. So when you talk about diversity and having a range of different people, is this something that your company should be conscious and looking out for when they're hiring people? But also, is it back to what we talked about a second ago about trusting your creative partners whether that's the agency or whether it's people external people that you use so there's no point in buying a dog and barking yourself so if you employ somebody to be that creative and then don't listen to them or you know the wisdom of crowds then what's the point in doing it so is it is it as much about your partners as much as the people that you employ and you look for in your own work phase but what are your what are your thoughts there so my thoughts are that I think it's really about trying to ensure that the right brain is properly represented as you've just said there there's going to be, you know, most people are going to be logical thinkers at mm. senior management level and boards. They'll probably have worked in the same industry for most of their lives. So the danger there of groupthink is absolutely enormous because there is such a lack of a lack of diversity, you know, in that. So I mentioned in the, the Irish Times article that many years ago, when I worked for the uh, the worldwide agency Ogilvy, I asked their worldwide CEO 
what their most successful offices had in common because they used to publish this league table of the most successful offices by commercial and creative. Those were the two measures used. And his reply was that really the only common denominator was a really strong partnership between each agency's CEO and -hmm. their creative director, which if you think about it, is the combination of left and right brain thinking in pretty much equal partnership. One of the most famous examples, one of the best known examples of that would be, you know, Steve Jobs of Apple and Lee Clow with the famous, you know, Chayat Day advertising agency with their groundbreaking, you know, uh, Think Different campaign, which I'm not going to quote because I certainly wouldn't do as good a job as Richard Dreyfuss did in the, uh, the original voiceover. But my view is that I think that every business leader should make it a priority uh, to listen to a creative voice or some creative voices mm. to basically try and build a, an ideally lifelong relationship of trust where they can get a different perspective to the ones they're most likely to get from their existing senior management team and their board. Now, it does not mean that their perspective is wrong or that mm. the board is wrong or indeed that the creative viewpoint is always right. But it absolutely means that each of them will help to inform each other and that can only be beneficial to the business overall. Yeah, great point. You then talked about the second thing is how we can kind of check ourselves and make sure that we're embracing creativity. So this trying to fight against, as you put it, this gravitational pull towards mediocrity. And we talked about a second ago about saying, you know, the the first idea that the agency presents is quite often not the one that gets on air. And I think it's easy to blame focus groups for, for argument's sake. But also the question I have is like, do you think clients don't take enough risks? Do you think the agency does enough on that front? Now, at the end of the day, if you force your view onto a client and say, no, trust me, trust me, trust me, and you've got a good relationship and it doesn't work, your neck is on the chopping block. But do you think agencies do enough or in your experience without, you know, just generally, do you think as custodians of that creative idea and the people who are passionate about that, do you think we admit defeating it too easily? Could we do more? I think we could do more. Uh, I think we should do more. But, you know, I also acknowledge that it is very difficult you know, to try and do that. The most frequent criticism I used to get from clients, you know, at chemistry was that we didn't know when to take no for an answer Mm. because we were constantly pushing for braver work, trying to push people outside of their comfort zones to achieve that first objective of getting the attention of the, you know, of the consumer. So I made the point in the article, and it's something I've said a few times, is that, you know, the war against conformity is probably unwinnable, Mm. but I think it is vital to keep fighting the battles Mm -hmm. because if agencies give up and just end up carrying out the instructions given to them by by their clients, they'll no longer provide the added value that is vital to them, both commercially and indeed existentially. So I think that the real challenge with this is what I've mentioned about the increasingly risk-averse culture in business these days, which means that the gravitational pull towards towards mediocrity is actually becoming self-perpetuating. And if you look these days at what it is people think, what consumers think about, about advertising, you know, more people are saying that they hate ads, you know, more than ever before. I can remember, it's not that long ago, that people said they, they enjoyed ads as much as the programs. Yeah. You know, you're not seeing that anymore. So this 89% that's unnoticed and unremembered is actually likely to grow. And that effectiveness multiple is likely to fall unless there is some way of breaking this cycle, which mm. is, in other words, fighting fighting more battles. Now, Richard Stratton wrote this book. Um, he's an ad man in the UK wrote a great book called The Choice Factory, which is about applying behavioral uh, science to advertising. And he made the point that advertising, if it is safe and familiar, is by definition risky. Because if someone else okay. is doing the same uh, or someone else is doing stuff that sounds and look like you know what mm-hmm. you're doing, basically you're, you're both, in, both in trouble. Mm-hmm. So in terms of trying to fight those battles, we used to have uh, an expression in chemistry that we used when clients pushed back on a campaign or an aspect of the campaign that, that we felt was very important. Our philosophy was to go back better. We used to use those those three words, go back better. And it was almost we treated it like a war of, attri- of attrition. Mm-hmm. And essentially that the only way to win was to keep fighting until eventually the client gave in right. and, you know, and you got your way. Now, the trouble with that is that it's expensive and it's exhausting. But I actually don't believe that there is, you know, an alternative. Now, I do think that one thing that agencies could do better is to try and understand the challenges that the client has internally with progressing the campaigns that, that agencies propose. So in agencies, of course, we feel that, you know, campaigns are the be all and the end all. But for marketers on the client side, it's it's actually a relatively small part of, of their overall job. Mm. So the better 
you know, the agency understands what the client needs to do in order to get the campaign over the line, the more they'll be able to help them and therefore the greater likelihood of getting the campaign approved. So I think agencies should be spending more time trying to understand where the pain points are going to be Mm. to get get campaigns approved on the client side. Yeah, fair point. Somewhat related to this, we talked about you. We talked earlier on about being different, and you refer to contrarian thinking. So, and you make an interesting point, which is it's obvious, really, when I think about it. But like, it's so simple that it's um, it's probably not done that often. So sometimes you say just behaving differently when you're not actually that different can be powerful in and of itself. And I guess that really relates to advertising. So talk me through that a little bit and give me some examples that people can kind of get what you mean by that. So where this started for me was, you know, early in my career, I came across something that was, I guess, accepted wisdom at the time, which was this notion of a unique selling proposition, a USP, and that used to appear on every every brief. And this was, you know, started by a US ad man, a fellow called Bob Bob Rosser. And his his thesis was that every product or service has got something unique about it. And the chief job of marketers and, and, and advertisers, agencies, was to find that unique and then communicate it. Now, I'm actually not sure how much that was ever true, but these days it's complete nonsense. Yeah. And Mark Ritson, who's the you know marketing professor and now consultant, uh, recently did a piece on the greatest marketing bullshits uh, <laughs> of all time, and the USP came in at number number one. Right. So we now live in a in an era of kind of near homogeneity in products and services because even if you do have a unique your competitors can copy it almost mm. instantaneously and they will if it's if it's going to be successful for them. So my point is that it's difficult, possibly even impossible, to, to actually be different on a sustainable basis. But you can certainly behave differently and appear to be different mm. by how you communicate. And it's far, far harder to replicate that. And yeah. one of the best examples I use about this is for the South African uh, investment management company called Alan Gray. So if you look at the investment category, I mean, essentially, the most generic proposition of all is you invest your money and you wait for a return. So it's about longer term, taking the longer term view. So Alan Gray actually take that generic proposition, but, you know, communicate it in a way which is unique to them. And they talk about the need and indeed the benefits of having patients in investing and how they bring it to life is in a completely differentiated way with highly engaging storytelling. And they've done that with total consistency now for probably 10 or 15 years. And they've got some of the best advertising in the category for years. Mm-hmm. So they are behaving differently, not being differently. And mm. it works brilliantly for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's far easier to do than actually trying to come up with a product that is truly different or to find whatever that tiny little nuance is that makes it different in in a in a client's mind much easier just behave differently um, and let you know because that builds more emotion you gave another brilliant example from rory sutherland the famous ad man and i love this line because it, it's so again it's so simple and it's so universally true if you set logical people the task of solving a persistent problem they're bound to fail because if a logical solution existed it would have been found already which makes total sense so we, talk, we, we touched on this earlier on, but how important is it is, do you think, to look for illogical solutions? A little bit like the bus stop example that you gave. We struggle, like human beings, we struggle to think illogically because it's just beaten out of us from, from when we're children. So you think that's really important, though. How important has it been for you and your life in terms of running a creative business and working in the ad industry for a long time, that, that ability to force yourself to think illogically? I guess it's been hugely important. I mean, it, it's probably something that comes easier to me because by nature I'm, I'm a contrarian. Uh, you know, so thinking about things in a different way to the you know normal way things are thought about is something which sits kind of easily, uh, you know, with me. Uh, you know, Rory Sutherland, you're talking about there. You know, he was on this podcast a mm-hmm. few weeks ago, and you know, the man is a legend. And again, for people listening, if they're not familiar with him, listen to his TED talks. You know, tune into him because he's both very learned and you know highly entertaining to boot. Yeah, and you know, his point about this problem, the persistent problem thing, is kind of really interesting because it it very effectively illustrates the need for right-brain thinking. We had a little bit of an example of this a number of years ago when we were working with Coors Light. When we started working with it, the brand was well, the brand was kind of in big trouble, really, because it was the first light beer in Ireland. And in, in the absence of being told anything different, consumers conclude that light was code for maybe low in calories or low in alcohol and or light in taste. So not surprisingly, about 80% of the brand's consumers were female. And I've always found it really fascinating how in some categories you can target one gender and appeal to both. 
Yeah. Whereas in another category, if you target one gender, you'll actively alienate the other. And in beer, that's an example of the latter, because if you target girls, mm-hmm. you will actively ex- exclude guys. Mm. And proof of that would be Satsenbro for anybody who remembers that brand that was completely a female beer, you know, and it died. Mm. So what we needed to do with Coors Light was to give it a backstory one which would increase its its male appeal. Uh, obviously, we couldn't afford to lose the female appeal, but if you target males in the beer category, you will appear you yeah. will appeal to females. So the campaign we came up with featured the founder of Coors searching in the Rocky Mountains for you know the perfect location to you know put his brewery, and his name was Adolf Coors or Adolf Coors, and that's how we introduced him in the ad. Now that seemed completely illogical because obviously that's a name with very very poor <laughs> associations. Um, But it turned out that using that name was what made the campaign completely believable. So this was actually a very good use of a focus group because it gave us the confidence to actually go with something that, you know, made us feel uncomfortable. But people in the groups basically figured that we wouldn't use his name if it wasn't true. Therefore, they believed the whole campaign. And, you know, this helped to get that brand to the number one in the off trade and the number three in the in the on trade within within a matter of years. Yeah, and I guess it, I said it, it's probably hard to do, but I guess it's probably not that hard to do. We, we all thought a certain way when we were children, that ability to think illogical. Well, there's, I know there's logic in how children think, but kind of if you try and think illogical about things, even if it's a technique you use, I'm sure it's going to be really valuable. Now, the last point that you make about about the process of creativity in the art, or one of the last points is, is this. It's one that's come up before. It actually came up in a month ago, I think, which is this stepping away from a problem. If you're looking at it and you're banging your head against the wall and you just can't see, and that happens all the time. It happens to me all the time. I just can't see the wood in the trees. I just can't. And I keep going because now I think it seems counterintuitive to think that the quickest way to find a solution is to, is to stop working on it. It just doesn't seem to make sense logically, but you, but it is actually it's logical. It's based on, on research from neuroscientists. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, this is this is probably my favorite technique for trying to think creatively. It's just, it works. It takes a bit of practice, but it really works. There used to be this neuroscience statistic that, you know, I used to quote as well. Uh, it was bandied about uh, years ago that humans use only about 5 to 10% of their brain's processing power. And basically imagine how much more productive we could be if we could tap into the other, you know, 90 to 95%. Now, other neuroscientists are disputing that. But what is indisputable is that our subconscious minds work very, very well when we actually allow them to do so. A huge percentage, if you work in a creative industry, whatever that industry is, you will be well aware that a huge percentage of the best ideas that creative people have is when they're not actually working, when they're not actively thinking about stuff, uh, about the task that they're working on. And that's that's all about the subconscious. And a great technique to make that work uh, is when you need a creative solution to a problem, or even if you've, you know, your rational mind can't decide between a number uh, of options, the trick is to force yourself to stop thinking about it. Okay? Now that actually takes that actually takes a bit of practice to do, but the chances are that the solution will present itself, you know, when you're out for a walk or in the shower or at any time when you're not actively thinking about it. Now, I first came across this. I used to be a crossword fiend in my younger days and loved doing cryptic crosswords. And I always found it very interesting that when you would be stuck on a clue, every time you came back to it, you would think of the same solution, even though you knew that that solution was wrong. Mm. The only way to to break that logjam would be to take a little bit of a break, start thinking about other clues or something else. And then very often when you would come back to that clue, you would instantaneously have the the solution to it. So again, Mm. the subconscious mind done all the work, figured it out for you and presented you with with the solution. Yeah, because I, I know that would happen myself and I sometimes wake up stressed about whatever you'd be working on pitching or something like that and you just can't get a, a brilliant idea and something will come to you. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, that's a great idea. And then I, I wouldn't write it down. I'd forget the next day. So I have a notebook by my bed. But there's this thing about I don't sleep very well. So there's a thing called cognitive shuffling, which is basically it kind of tricks your brain into that sleep pattern by getting you to think about random things. So there are lots of tricks and, and tips that you can use to to jolt your brain out of that kind of river of inertia in terms of thinking. In terms of creative generally, this is a question I have because I guess it's a debate. I mean, some people are more right brain, some people are more left brain. Is creativity something that people can practice, anybody can get better at? Or is it a case that like, well, 
you're either creative type or you're not. And and there's probably a lot of truth in that, but everybody can think more creatively. And are there, I suppose, is there any frameworks or processes or courses or anything that you've gone on that you think were useful? I know I went to one years and years ago called What If, and it was a two-day thing. It was amazing. But it's like anything else, muscle memory came back. I slowly started to forget day by day, week by week, the process. And then and now it's all distant memory at this stage. But there, I remember there was some brilliant techniques in that. Do you have any... Uh, frameworks or processes or is there any you know of that you use or that people could look into if people are interested in it so the short answer to that is that any of them are good okay so i don't have the silver bullet uh you know for you know for this but i would say that basically any form of training or practice around creative thinking is going to be beneficial because mm-hmm. you know as you say not all of us would be creative geniuses but everyone can reorient their minds to think more creatively. And I don't think it's about, you know, becoming 50-50 left brain, right brain. It's if you're only 5% in one, try and increase it yeah. to 10%. That will, you know, that will benefit. So one thing that I do is to ensure that I get inspiration from people that I find interesting and in particular people that I find challenging. And I think this is really, really important because so many people are now caught in echo chambers of the mm. news that they're I think you have to make an active effort to ensure that you're being informed and challenged by opinions other than your own mm-hmm. in order to be able to do that. So people like Dave Trotter mentioned Rory Sutherland, Mark Ritson, even the likes of Bob Hoffman, you know, the ad contrarian yeah. and essentially grumpy old man of, of advertising. So I particularly just try to ensure that I'm exposed to viewpoints that I don't agree with. Um, and that's not just in marketing, but, yeah. but in all fields. Have your thinking challenged, and that will stimulate your creative thinking. And when, as you say, you know the cognitive shuffle is going on, when you think you have a solution to something, write it down, yeah. because it's so easy to forget it or forget how you got there. And then that frees your mind up to go and think about other mm. ideas, and maybe some of those can be off the wall that you can, you know, run run against the original idea. Great, yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> I, I just want I want to chat to you for just a few minutes. You've had a, a brilliant career in advertising and. Like, as I said at the start, my company and your company, we've worked together for years. We've worked in some great campaigns. Is there any work that you, or not even anything at all, that like either yourself personally or as the agency, what, what are you most proud of in terms of the work that you've done? That's a very tough question. In a, in a 35-year career to date, uh, I could probably name examples from every year, but uh, I don't think many people would listen, Dave. Um, so I'll just fade I'm, you out. Don't worry. I'll just edit you out anyway and get to the good ones. <laughs> the grand. I'm, I'm really proud of the work that uh, that we did with the Irish Examiner over about 10 years because, you know, the ultimate challenger brand, we got to do some great, brilliant, just groundbreaking work in every medium. And it was an agency client partnership that was incredibly productive and, you know, and enjoyable. But if I had to pick just one campaign, though, it would be something, you know, you might find maybe a little unexpected. It would actually be a kind of a cross-agency pro bono campaign which was about trying to tackle the bullying of the LGBTI plus kids uh, in secondary school. So I was on the IAPI board at the time, and we were looking at all sorts of initiatives around, you know, trying to improve diversity in the industry and so on. So I proposed that we run a campaign on behalf of an organisation called Belong To, which represents LGBTI plus youth. And the timing was actually really fortuitous because it was their 10th year of running something called Stand Up, uh, week, which is stand up to homophobic and transphobic bullying. The participation rate, you know, haven't been doing this for 10 years. It had plateaued at about 44%. So, you know, they wanted to lift that in their 10th year. So we managed to organize the biggest ever cross-agency collaboration involving people from 16 different agencies working together in the Scratch team. We also got just fantastic support from production companies and from actors and post-production houses, all of whom worked you know, completely for free. We also got 2FM involved and they ran a full week of interviews and so on with you know, LGBTI plus kids and, and their families. And we got the media agencies involved and their clients who we asked to donate one spot each on 2FM right. yeah. that we could use to, to basically advertise the initiative. Uh, so for me, that was pretty much a career high, yeah. uh, being involved with that. And it was also a great success because we yeah. took the participation rate from 44% uh, up to 58%, which is, you know, just fantastic. Yeah, and it's nice to work on something where you can feel good as opposed to like selling more stuff. So um, we talked about this earlier on. We, look, we're in a globalized world now. The business I started out in was small 
a local locally owned and managed business. It's very different today. There's there's advantages and disadvantages of that you've done both. You've worked in a large agency creative group. You've also set up your own business. And when you think about the local business in Ireland, because it's not just an ad thing. I think it's any small business. I don't know if you're in retail. I talked about Amazon last week. How do you compete with Amazon or even ASOS? How do you compete with these big guys? You know, when they can deliver, it's free delivery and free returns and the expectation economy that we live in with consumers. But if we think about advertising in our business, do you worry about the local agency business in Ireland today? Like, have we got good people? Is it hard to hold on to talent? Are they just not going to be sucked up by all the the, the big creative shops? Do you worry about it? the sustainability of, of the, the kind of small independent creative and media and advertising business here? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I mean, what I was saying when we were chatting, you know, off air was that <clears throat> I think there's a bit of a perfect storm in the communications agency world, not just ad agencies, but, you know, the broader ecosystem at the moment, because there's a huge land grab that's going on between creative and media, and digital, mm-hmm. but there's also competition from, you know, previously non-competitive sectors, you know, like PR agencies, the management consultancies are, you know, getting really, really powerful. At the same time, you know, margins have been driven down to historic lows. And uh, as that is going on, there is also a broadening demand for the range of skills that uh, that agencies have to provide. So your cost base is increasing while your margins are, you know, are dropping. And then you've also got the fragmentation in the industry. That means that there's competition really at every bit of the value chain. So it is, it's a, I think it's a pretty ugly category uh, yeah. to be involved at the moment. I think the overall landscape is is kind of really troubled. And I think one of the main troubles is that agencies seem to have fallen down the corporate food chain, as it were, to a point where they're doing ads or they're placing ads. And that is absolutely the road to perdition. I think that the agency sector as a whole needs to fundamentally reinvent and reposition itself as a source of creativity, not just doing ads, but essentially in providing creative solutions to business problems, because that's what businesses can't do. Mm. It's the most valuable service that agencies can provide, and it's one which other providers can't easily do. So I think agencies need to to reinvent themselves. Mm. It's a really fundamental shift, though, and it's going to require not just attitudinal change, but structural change as well. And and even so, not just on the agency side, but on the client side too, because marketing departments will need to take on the broader remit of trying to find answers to business problems or capitalize on opportunities. Because I think that marketing departments in in client companies have also become quite disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. I think they have also moved down the, the food chain. And because the fortunes of agencies and marketing departments are at this point inextricably linked, yeah. you know, we're going to sink together unless we find some way of breaking the cycle. Yeah, yeah, it's quite worrying at the moment. But I'm sure, look, many loads of industries and business have, have reinvented themselves. And I think the ad industry is, is one of those businesses that just needs to do more, prove its, its worth and its value a lot more. Uh, we're thinking about the like you had a very successful business in Ireland, but I said you'd done both. So we've seen lots of takeovers in Adland um, happen to us. We got bought out years and years ago, and we see it happen. Big, particularly in creative, the big creative shops like are being acquired by by the the groups, and and that that can be a bad thing because quite often the founders and and the creative talent behind that, the original founding fathers, that end up leaving, um, and that's not a good thing. So, just in your business minute, did you ever think of? cashing out, selling into one of the globe. I'm sure somebody must have looked at you guys a few times and said, brilliant business model. We want a footprint in Ireland or we want to grow. So we just buy that. Did, did it something you thought about? Something you would have liked to do? Why didn't yeah. you cash out? It is something that I thought about. Uh, I think I thought about it maybe too late. I thought, it, thought about it really in the last 10 years of the business. Um, I should have thought about it in the first 10 years mm. because, you know, yes, chemistry was very, very successful creatively. It was very successful commercially as well for you know, essentially until the recession hit. And I'm not sure that we really ever recovered. We had maybe two good right. years, yeah. uh, you know, from 2008 until 2020 when, you know, when we shut down. But the other years, you know, weren't just not good. They were actually quite poor. So sometimes we had to go and raid reserves, you know, and that's kind of never a good thing. No. Now, culturally, it would have been difficult for us to uh, to be taken over by a, by a multinational because, you know, a lot of us had worked with those agencies and it was the reason that we wanted to break yeah. away and do our own thing. And a lot of what we did with the culture in chemistry was as a result of what we didn't like about the culture in the global uh, agencies. Commercially, however, that's a different mm. matter. And, you know, we did look at it. We had a number of conversations, some of which, you know, were quite advanced. But as I say, ultimately, our timing wasn't good because in that, you know, last 10 years, 
the commercial fortunes of the business were were not attractive enough. Also, the market, the Irish market, wasn't particularly attractive to international agencies at the time. Mm. And then even worse, the category, the advertising category, also not terribly attractive to companies looking for takeovers. So, so our timing was all wrong. We could have changed the business model. We did talk about it. What we would have needed to do was instead of providing you know, the type of premium service that we had always done, which was to try and dominate in terms of standout work and award-winning work, which is very expensive to do. Mm-hmm. We would have been able to survive, I think, a bit longer had we decided to just lower the standards right. Right, and say, let's just have a, a quicker factory model here. Where we're turning out work a bit faster. Yeah. The trouble was that none of us in the company had been, we'd recruited nobody on that basis. And culturally, that would have been far too much of a, a change. So we felt the best thing to do was just to say, okay, look, the market right now is not for us. So we should we should back out. Yeah. And then uh, you like, you, and you wouldn't have been happy doing that business anyway, you know, churning out work that you, that's not what you, no. or you say, you know, you are, I think it's great in a small business because the culture is a real thing and you have control over it, even to the point where you can say no to work or whatever, you know, it's, you're just master of your own destiny. And the people you've brought into that business were all aligned to that culture. So you can't just turn up to work on Monday and say, we're a completely different business now. It's just not going to work. And you wouldn't have been happy doing it. But yeah, no, it's an interesting point. But on that note, what are you at now? Are you working with clients? Are you working with anybody? What are you doing in areas of creativity? And what's next for Ray Sheeran? So what I'm doing, I'm working as an independent non-executive director. Um, so I'm involved with with boards. I'm an advisor to three boards. Uh, one of them is a company called Parents and Brands, which is, given that we've talked about research, a very interesting one because their difference is they've got about six million kind of engagements with their, you know, with their base. It's huge uh, in terms of engagement. And what's really interesting and differentiated about it is that they don't incentivize response. Unlike focus groups, they're not paying to be there. So it's based on mutual benefits, mutual rewards. So parents will tell, you know, this company things, parents and brands, they will tell them things because they will then get a benefit back when the company has done it. So it's a very interesting platform. I'm working with uh, uh, an activation and events agency called Raw, Raw Marketing and Events. Very challenging times, obviously, for anybody in business or board advisor there. And then I've just started working with a food-on-the-go company called Daily Lights. Uh, so board advisor there as well. And then I work directly with clients on projects. So I'm kind of doing some stuff there that's very interesting. There's a skincare brand I've just started working with called Finca. Um, it is a treatment for rosacea. So it's really interesting looking at, you know, at their business and brand. And I've just finished a big branded entity piece for a property tech company called, called Property Button. Right. So it's a lot of project work. It's a lot of, kind of board advisory stuff. I'm hugely enjoying the freedom to work on what it is that I want without having to worry about all those mouths to feed. And I also, one of the big differences I'm finding is that the people, you know, I'm working with, they're really appreciative Mm -hmm. uh, of what I'm doing for them and they're very vocal about it. And I think that's probably something that's been a bit lacking in agency land these days. Mm -hmm. And I'd really love to see just a bit more of that, that kind of courtesy coming back. And having said all of that, I think the chemistry we were quite spoiled by certain clients with whom we had fantastic relationships. So we probably weren't even, you know, getting the worst of that. But it's something which I, yeah. you know, I really appreciate now. Sounds like you're busy. Sounds like you're enjoying life, which is great. We're nearly out of time. Well, we're over time, but it's fine because I've enjoyed this one. So it's been fine. Where can people, if anyone's listening and said, I need to talk to Ray Sheeran about something, where can they find out a little bit more about you? Where should they go to get in touch? So the best thing to do is to get me via my Gmail address, which is ray.sheeran at gmail.com or failing that via LinkedIn. Okay, cool. And we'll promote this on LinkedIn. Okay, that's been brilliant. We are out of time. Thanks for joining me today, Ray. It was a pleasure, Dave. Good chatting to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. And also a big thanks to Andrea on Sound and Kira in Marketing. And as always, thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions. If you like this episode, follow us, tell your colleagues about it, listen back to some of the other great episodes. As Ray mentioned, Rory Sutherland was a good one. I'm glad you said him, Ray, because I get accused of name dropping when I say Rory Sutherland was on. <laughs> so you brought it up, just to be clear. I did not. Exactly. Um, and if you want to look back, in the episode, you'll find them by typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. So until next time, stay safe. Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.